This is lecture number 11 on Deuteronomy by Robert Vinoy. Lecture 11. There are three names with three views that we want to discuss today, and the first is R.H. Kennett. If you look in your bibliography, page 2, you see R.H. Kennett's book, Deuteronomy and the Decalogue. It was produced by Cambridge Press, and the book came out in 1920. He proposed the date for Deuteronomy in the time of Haggai and Zechariah, and said it could not have been written under either Hezekiah or Manasseh or Josiah. Some of the reasons he advocated were, he said, to gather all Israel together annually to one sanctuary would have been impracticable in the time of Hezekiah, Manasseh, or Josiah. If it was a requirement that all Israel go to the central sanctuary, keen on the centralization of worship, the one sanctuary for the annual feast, he says it would have been impractical in those earlier times. However, in the time of Haggai and Zechariah, after the return from exile, when Judah was a relatively small community, it might have been workable to have a central sanctuary, so he proposes. I read what he says. Any attempt to carry out the laws of Deuteronomy chapter 13 would have meant a civil war, end quote. Deuteronomy 13 concerns false worshipers, and earlier in Israel's history, what he's saying is, there were so many people engaging in idolatry that it simply would have been impractical to try to enforce a central worship center. You notice Deuteronomy 13 says the following, and I quote, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, Let us follow other gods and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. End quote. Then in verse 5 we read, That prophet or dreamer must be put to death. Verse 6 says, If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and worship other gods, show them no pity, do not spare them or shield them, you must certainly put them to death. So, that strict penalty for false worship and false prophets, Kenneth says, that simply could not have been enforced in the time of Hezekiah, Manasseh, or Josiah. Chapter 17 of Deuteronomy is the law of the king, and that's in the latter part of the chapter where Kenneth says, this part, this law of the king, quote, could not have been written when the king was on the throne, but only when there is a probability that one would be elected. And of Kenneth's quote. In other words, it looks like a time when kingship is to be established, not like a time when kingship already is established. If you were in the time of Hezekiah, Manasseh, or Josiah, it already is established. If you go to the post-exilic period, when the Judahites came back with the governor, they're hoping for a return, maybe to kingship, so Kenneth thinks that it would probably fit better there. He says, quote, there is no king, but there is a probability that one will be elected. And strange to say, it is necessary to insist that the king who may be elected by the community generally should be of Israelite birth. Again, quoting Kenneth. Now, the law of the king says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 5, Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. 
So those are the reasons Kenneth gave why the date of Deuteronomy doesn't fit in the 600s, and he wants to push it later into post-exilic times. I think the immediate question to a view like Kenneth's is, why go to post-exilic times? Why not go to pre-monarchic times? That satisfies his objections, and of course, it is consistent with the claims of the book of Deuteronomy as well. All right, little d of the outline is G. Holscher, also on page two of your bibliography. It's a German work translated. It's the composition origin of Deuteronomy, and that was published in 1922. Holscher's thesis was that because of the detailed description of 2 Kings 22, you cannot deny the historicity of 2 Kings 22. But he denied that the law book of Josiah could be identified with Deuteronomy. In Holscher's view, Deuteronomy represented a program for a restoration of Israel after the exile. He felt it came from the priestly circles in Jerusalem and dates it around 500 B.C. Among Holscher's arguments were, he said it fits better with post-exilic times than pre-exilic, much as Kennett was saying. He also said that Deuteronomy chapter 16, which requires the whole family to go to Jerusalem, was inoperable in pre-exilic times. And to quote from J. Thompson, speaking of Holscher, Thompson says, He proposed that Deuteronomy was not a program for reform, but the wishful thinking of unrealistic post-exilic dreamers. He also said that it's unlikely that Josiah would proclaim Deuteronomy chapter 17:14 as the law of the land when it restricted the right of kings. End quote. In other words, the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17 put certain limitations to what a king could do. Holscher saying, "Why would a king tie his own hands?" Further. Holscher observes from the Elephantine papyri found in Egypt dated from the 5th century B.C. that it seems that the Jewish community there was unacquainted with the idea of centralization of worship because they had their own center of worship there. In fact, they were asking people of Jerusalem to help support the building of the temple there in that area of Egypt. His idea, then, is that Deuteronomy, with its centralization emphasis, hadn't been promulgated yet because the people at Elephantine Egypt seemed to be unacquainted with the demands of Deuteronomy. This was in the 5th century BC, so Holscher would put Deuteronomy fairly late in the post-exilic period. He claims that the fact that they had a place of worship there, at Elephantine, and were even soliciting funds for the building of the temple, shows they had no idea of the centralization belief. Therefore, he's saying Deuteronomy didn't even exist at that time. Of course, you could equally say Deuteronomy was mosaic, and these people had long since forgotten or ignored it. Deuteronomy does say all the males, so it's not that everybody had to go to Jerusalem, but the heads of households, or maybe heads of clans, which then would give more of a representative kind of view. All right, that's in general just briefly the idea of Holscher. His view was attacked by Patton in that article I mentioned earlier. It's page 3 of your bibliography, and that's in JBL, Journal of Biblical Literature, 1928, and the name of the article is The Case for the Post-Exilic Origin of Deuteronomy. There, Patton is examining Holscher's case. 
What Patton does is argue for the traditional Wellhausen standpoint. And Patton does that with a number of arguments arguing for the Wellhausen standpoint over against Holscher's. He criticizes Holscher. First, he emphasizes that the measures taken by Josiah in 2 Kings 22 conform to the requirements of Deuteronomy. In other words, if you compare what Josiah did in his Reformation, given to us in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23, Penn argues that those things conform to the requirements of Deuteronomy. I don't have a lot of problem with that. I think you can draw a certain connection between Deuteronomy and what Josiah did. Second, Patton says, and I'm quoting here, the historical trustworthiness of 2 Kings 22 cannot be questioned, end quote. A number of people have said that, as we have seen in this course. Well, again, that's interesting. I'll quote from him again. He says, What the editor of Kings wrote out of his own head about the times of David and Solomon, perhaps even about the times of Hezekiah, may well be literary intervention, but the days of Josiah were too near and too clear in the memory of his contemporaries for him to make up the story out of whole cloth. End quote. So again, you see, you get that interesting twist where he's arguing for the historical reliability of Josiah's story while at the same time admitting that David's story and Solomon's story, maybe even Hezekiah's story, were all fabrications. Hulsher similarly said that 2 Kings 22 was generally reliable, but it had some later additions. My next point is that Patton criticized Hulsher's view that 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 8a, verses 9 and 10, verse 15, and verses 21 to 27, again in 2 Kings 23, were later editions added after 500 B.C., Holscher would say these passages are generally reliable, but there were these later editions, and Patton criticizes him for intimating these are later editions. Patton says, and I quote from Patton, Holscher begins by eliminating a number of verses in these chapters as interpolations by redactor D2, the very latest editor of the Book of Kings, and so forth. Holscher's main argument for rejecting these passages that I just read, is that they interrupt the context. End quote. I won't go into the details of that, but you get the debate between these two individuals. Let me just mention here that Holscher's view was that Josiah was not a person who centralized worship so much as a person who purified it, and for that no knowledge of Deuteronomy is required. Deuteronomy is what centralizes worship, and that's late later than Josiah's reform. In Holscher's view, it was purification of worship, not centralization of worship. The way Jeremiah was treated and the lack of response among the people to his message would indicate that whatever went on in Josiah's reform, it was not something that turned the whole nation around and continued thereafter. There's somewhat of a mystery there as to exactly what the connection of Jeremiah the prophet is to Josiah's reform. Jeremiah is not mentioned in Kings in connection with Josiah's reform, and Josiah isn't mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. That doesn't necessarily mean there's any problem here. It's just we don't know exactly how Jeremiah was involved in the implementation of some of those reforms or what his role was. It's just not addressed. 
But it doesn't seem like the Reformation was one that was of such significance, depth, and duration. Jeremiah's warnings and his calls for the people to return to the Lord fell on deaf ears. They just about killed him. In reference to Holsher, what scroll was found in the temple in the time of Josiah? I'm not sure, but I assume he would think it was maybe the Covenant Code or some other part of the Pentateuch. As far as that Elephantine argument goes, that they didn't have any knowledge of this centralization of worship, Patton says that just shows that after Josiah's Reformation, illegitimate cultic practices returned quickly. The argument that centralization of worship was impractical in the time of Josiah, Patton counters by saying it was also impractical in the post-exilic period. So now he just says that doesn't help. Patton says even granted the impractical idealism of Deuteronomy, one cannot help asking whether this idealism was any more impractical in post-exilic times than in pre-exilic times. G.R. Berry, another author that's little c on your sheet, and he says, talking about Holsher, and I quote Berry here, Holsher made no attempt to discover the law book of Josiah elsewhere in the Old Testament, end quote. That is, he didn't try to identify it. So he's saying it wasn't Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy is later, but he didn't attempt to identify what that book of the law was. Now, what Barry did is he made suggestions in respect to that. He also felt Deuteronomy was post-exilic, but then he developed a thesis that the law book of Josiah is to be identified with the Holiness Code, or H, that we've seen before, which is pretty much composed of Leviticus chapters 17 to 26. His article is in your bibliography as well, page 2, and it's called Date of Deuteronomy, and this is in JBL, or Journal of Biblical Literature, 1940. Barry's proposal, then, is that H precedes Deuteronomy rather than follows it. He said the connections between Deuteronomy and that holiness code, or H, are to be ascribed to the influence of H on D rather than the other way around, D on H. He just turned these things around. So he came to a conclusion for a late date for Deuteronomy and suggests that perhaps the law book of Ezra was Deuteronomy. When Ezra read the book of the law in post-exilic times, maybe that was Deuteronomy, according to Barry. Now, in view of Barry, and again, we won't get into details, but the view of Barry was opposed by a man called A. Freed, and that's F-R-I-E-D, in his work called The Code Spoken Of in Second Kings chapter 22 and 23, and that article is also in JBL, volume 40, 1921. I won't go further into detail on that, but for those of you who are interested, you may read that article as well. I hope you see from all of this, you get back to where Deuteronomy is the keystone for this JDP documentary source theory approach. If there's a question about the date of Deuteronomy, then it affects the whole theory. Now, there have been a number, and I've just mentioned to you three examples of critical scholars who would say Deuteronomy ought to be put later in the post-exilic period. So the date is not so absolutely established, even among critical scholars, as one may think, or as one reads in the popular discussions of JDP. 
But now, let's go back to advocates of a date earlier than 621, and that's number two in your outline. But they put the date during the monarchical period, not earlier. I have found five names with this view. Ewald, Westfall, Austriker, Welsh, and our friend Fonrad. Heinrich Ewald placed the origin in the time of Manasseh. That's not much earlier than Josiah. That would be around 697 to 642 B.C., or about 20 years before Josiah's finding of the Book of the Law. Ewald, or Ewald, depending how you want to pronounce the name, lived in the late 1800s at the same time as Wellhausen. A. Westfall wrote a book called The Law and the Prophets in 1910, and said that only Deuteronomy could have inspired a reformation like that of Hezekiah, who began to reign around 729 B.C. So he felt that Deuteronomy originated during the time of Hezekiah and of Isaiah about 100 years before Josiah. Isaiah prophesied during the time of Hezekiah. So that was an appropriate period, he thought, for the composition of a book like Deuteronomy. So, with Ewald, you go back to Manasseh, and with Westfall, you go back to the time of Hezekiah. T.H. Ostriker is the third man here. Perhaps Ostriker, Welsh, and Von Rad are probably the three most important under this heading of five names. Ostriker argued for a date earlier than Hezekiah. He'd go back to about the 10th century. In connection with his view, he said the Reformation of Josiah accomplished purification of worship, but not centralization. Deuteronomy does not require centralization of worship. Now, that has some significance because it really undermines this whole structure of Wellhausen if Deuteronomy doesn't require centralization of worship. Ostriker says that the Reformation of Josiah sought cultus einheit, not cultus reinheit. Kultus Einheit is cultic unity. Kultus Reinheit is cultic purity. So he says the Reformation of Josiah was more of Kultus Reinheit. So it's not centralization of worship, but purification of worship. He felt that Josiah's Reformation had a strong political character to it. He feels that what Josiah was trying to do is to free Israel, both politically and religiously, from Assyrian dominance. He said all these things that Josiah did had nothing to do with centralization of the cult. It was more he had certain political goals in connection with freeing Israel from Assyrian domination, and what he wanted to do was achieve that political independence, but not centralization of worship. Ostriker says, quote, Deuteronomy does not direct itself against multiplicity of sanctuaries, but against polytheism, end quote. And, of course, the Assyrians were polytheists, and that, according to Ostriker, is the issue. Now, we'll come back to that issue in more detail later, because Ostriker argued that the phrase in Deuteronomy that says, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 14, there are several places it occurs, but in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 14, is where it says, as we have seen before, in the place which the Lord your God shall choose, and in one of your tribes, end quote. And he says it's better translated, quote, in any place which the Lord shall choose in any of your tribes, end quote. Now, we will have to look at that because that's a key issue as to how to translate this phrase. 
But that's where he says that Deuteronomy 12 does not demand centralization of worship. So there could be multiplicity of sanctuaries, but what Deuteronomy opposed was heathen cults, polytheism, and arbitrary choosing of places of worship. All right, let's go on to little d of the outline, and that's Adam Welsh. Look on your sheet, I think I have at the top of page 4, that he wrote the following, Code of Deuteronomy, in 1924. Welsh came pretty much to the same conclusion as Ostriker concerning the question of centralization of worship. Welsh, like Ostriker, regarded the basic emphasis of Deuteronomy to be on the character of the places of worship, not on the number. He concluded Deuteronomy originated in northern Israel from the time of Samuel on. That's fairly early, it's pre-monarchic, but that in its present form it dates from about the 8th century. So with Ewald, Vespal, Ostriker, Welsh, and I haven't mentioned Fulanrad yet, but with all these men, you're moving back earlier, progressively earlier than the time of Josiah. But not back all the way to pre-monarchical times, and certainly not all the way back to Mosaic times. Now, back to our friend Fonrad. With Fonrad, you have the influence of form-critical study coming into his viewpoint, and his viewpoint is rather complex. There are three books that are significant. I have one of them on this sheet in the middle of page 3, and it's called Studies in Deuteronomy. That's this little book published in 1953. But he also did a commentary on Deuteronomy, which has been translated in the series Old Testament Library, and that's published by the Westminster Press. That was in 1964, and it was first published in English in 1966. Also important is his book, The Problem of the Hexateuch, which is a volume of collected essays. The original article was published in 1938, but the collection of essays was published in 1966. So those three books are very important as far as Fonrad's view of Deuteronomy goes, and that includes its date, its nature, and etc. He retains the idea that Deuteronomy is the law book of Josiah, but he says, and I quote him here, Deuteronomy is the result of a long and complicated process of development. End quote. In other words, Deuteronomy is not something that was just written in the time of Josiah. It is the end product of a long process of development. On page 37 of his work, Studies in Deuteronomy, he says the following, Deuteronomy makes its appearance at a definite point in the history of Israel's faith. It makes its appearance as a finished, mature, beautifully proportioned, theologically clear work. Because of these characteristics, it is in all circumstances to be taken, as in one respect, the final product of a long and extremely complex development. At a relatively late date, it gathers together practically the whole of the assets of the faith of Israel, re-sifting them and purifying them theologically. The most varied groups of traditions are harmonized to one another in it, and welded together into as perfect and complete unity as can be conceived. In this respect, as in others, it is comparable to John's Gospel in the New Testament books. End quote. So, that's also assuming there's a long development behind John's Gospel, but that's a different point. But this is Fonrad's view as far as the character of the book of Deuteronomy goes. 
Flanrod gets more specific. He says, and I quote him again, Deuteronomy is the product of a restoration movement in which the old cultic tradition of the Yahweh Amphictyony at Shechem is reintroduced as obligatory upon Israel. End quote. Have you ever heard of the term Amphictyony? He calls it a restoration movement, quote, in which the old cultic tradition of the Yahweh Amphictyony at Shechem is reintroduced as obligatory upon Israel. End quote. Now, an Amphictyony is a confederation of political units around a central religious shrine. I think the term and concept is borrowed from Greek history. But there's been a long theory, according to von Rad as one advocate of it, and Martin Noth as another, that the original organization of Israel was an Amphictyony, and the center of it was Shechem. In Joshua chapter 24, Joshua calls all Israel to Shechem, and the covenant is renewed at that assembly. Joshua challenges the people to serve the Lord and says, famously, in this quote, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and so forth. People like Martin Noth and Gerhard von Rad feel that right at that point in Israel's history, there were a lot of diverse groups who came together and adopted Yahweh as their deity. The Amphictyony is for its social structure. A lot of diverse groups gathered around the central religious shrine at Shechem. So what he's saying here is, Deuteronomy is the process of a restoration movement in which the old cultic tradition of Yahweh and Yahweh's Amphictyony at Shechem is reintroduced as obligatory upon Israel. What Funrad tried to do then was to apply the form-critical method to the book of Deuteronomy. The breakout of all this stalemate and debate about the character of the book and the structure of the book then was something that particularly attracted his attention. If you look at Funrad's article, The Problem of the Hexateuch, he says on page 26, and I quote him, In the light of what has been said, we must look now again at the book of Deuteronomy. We may leave aside the many difficulties currently raised by the problem of Deuteronomy and confine ourselves to a matter which has yet scarcely been touched on by scholars, despite all the controversy about the nature of the book. What are we to say about the form of Deuteronomy? End quote. So, Funrad starts asking the question, what do we do with the form? Is there a structure of the book as a whole with its remarkable succession of speeches, laws, and so on? Even if it be thought that Deuteronomy and its present guise come straight from the theologian's desk, this does not prevent our asking, to what genre does Deuteronomy belong? It simply drives the question further back. It compels us to look into the history and development of the form of the material used by the Deuteronomic theologians. One simply cannot accept the assumption that these men created ad hoc so remarkable a literary form. And that's the end of the quote from Flanrod. He then goes on and discusses this at some length. And he says, and I quote him again, Obviously, from the point of view of form criticism, no one would accept any such picture of the origins of Deuteronomy. It is precluded by a recognition of the fact that Deuteronomy is in form an organic whole. End quote. In form, he says, it's an organic whole. And he goes on to say, we may distinguish any number of different strata by literary criteria, 
but in the matter of form, the various constituents form an indivisible unity. The question is thus inexplicably raised of the origin and purpose of the form of Deuteronomy, as we now have it. End quote. He then gives an outline of the structure of the book, and we're going to look at the structure and form of Deuteronomy a bit later. I think it's really significant that von Rad says it's important to see the unity of the structure of the book of Deuteronomy. He sees it as the end product of a long process of development. But he sees the structure of it as rooted back in this covenant renewal festival that was held periodically in Shechem. It reflects the elements of that covenant renewal. It's a cultic liturgy, you might say. He then proposes this renewal began way back earlier in the time of Joshua. How was that form preserved? How was it passed on? It's rooted back in this cultic observance at Shechem. He proposes it was the Levites who preserved and elaborated on that old cultic material. So the final form needs to be attributed to the Levites who preached and taught the law much later during the monarchical period. Now, on page 26 of Von Rad, he has his conclusion. And I read it here. If these considerations are well grounded, we shall propose one of the sanctuaries of northern Israel, probably Shechem or Bethel, to be Deuteronomy's place of origin, and the century before 621 must be its date. There's no sufficient reason for going back further than a century before 621. End quote. So what he's saying is here's 621 B.C., but Deuteronomy has had a long process of development. It came to its final form around 721, a century before 621. And the 721, of course, is close to 722, the fall of Samaria, when the northern tribes were wiped out. But it's originally rooted back in Yahweh's Amphictyony, which would have been several centuries before 621. I want to come back to the form of Deuteronomy because that becomes increasingly important, and how you're going to answer that question is very important for the whole structure of JEDP. Now, number three of the outline, very quickly, pre-monarchical dating but non-mosaic. Two names are associated with pre-monarchical dating of Deuteronomy, but not going all the way back to Moses. And those two names are Edward Robertson and R. Brinker. Edward Robinson wrote The Old Testament Problem in 1950, and in that book he says the following. The Hebrews entered Palestine as an organized community possessing a nucleus of law comprising the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments, and perhaps the Book of the Covenant. Between the settlement and the rise of the monarchy, this community became decentralized and split up into a number of religious communes, each with its own independent sanctuary. At these sanctuaries, there developed divergent thoughts, related traditions, and laws. When the people were reunited under a king, it was necessary to bring about religious unity. For this purpose, a summary of legislation comprising a codification after due investigation and review of the law codes of the sanctuaries was prepared under Samuel's guidance and immediate supervision. This new code was the Book of Deuteronomy and was designed to be the standard law code of the centralized administration. The union of tribes under a king made centralization of worship desirable and possible.
And that's the end of the quote by Robertson. So that's a very interesting theory. Very hypothetical, of course, but you can see Robertson's general thesis. The land had all kinds of different law traditions developing. Under Samuel's leadership, Samuel was the one who anointed the first two kings, Saul and David, those traditions were unified. And as a result, this codification, we find unity in the book of Deuteronomy. So, Robertson ascribes it to Samuel. So it's pre-monarchic and non-mosaic, but it's very hypothetical. R. Brinker, little b, The Influence of Sanctuaries in Early Israel, and that's a little work that was written in 1946 by Brinker. It's a position very similar to that of Robertson. Brinker argued that centralization was not stress, rather it was purification. So you see, you're back to that twist. It's the same thing that Holsher talked about. Does Deuteronomy really require centralization, or is its emphasis more purification? Brinker took a position similar to Robertson that Samuel was really responsible for Deuteronomy. Centralization is not stress. The stress is warning against syncretism with idolatry and purity of worship. All right, that brings us to number four, and I think I'll stop with that. After all, it's ten of the hour. I want to just make a few comments, however, about some advocates for mosaic dates. As I mentioned earlier, and through this whole history of discussion, there's always been those representing the position that argues for the mosaic date of Deuteronomy, and these are some representatives of that that we want to mention. There are some current people who are presently involved in this debate and bring really new perspectives on the debate that help to substantiate mosaic authorship of Deuteronomy. So we'll move on to that later. Okay, one more comment on Amphictyony. As I said before, some of you look puzzled, but as I said before, it's an association of political units around a central religious shrine or deity. So the idea, applying that to Israel from these critical perspective, is that most of these guys would say that Israel didn't come as a block out of Egypt to occupy the land, but there may have been some smaller element that indeed did that. Israel had a lot of other diverse elements, and all of these elements pulled together around the sanctuary at Shechem with the deity Yahweh, and they said, the Lord will be our God, and that's what pulled them together, not their ethnic background. Okay, see you next time we meet. That's the end of Lecture 11 on Deuteronomy by Robert Vinoy.